Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Michael Morrow, Ron Hayes, and Jason Lopez. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed Podcast. You've got myself, Ron Hayes, in Wyoming, and Michael Morrow coming to us from Colorado. You've got a new hat, Mike. Yeah, I just got this yesterday. I was doing some training on some of the new gimbal technology, and GSS is one of the companies. It's amazing, amazing stuff. To be able to put a 50 to 1,000 millimeter lens in there with a red camera and have it be completely stable on a helicopter, just blow your mind well i'm excited to hear more about that and hopefully at some point go train on that system myself it's hard to get the train the training times that's why i jumped on it It was only one day but i figured what the heck i'd just go for for one day and get what you can get we have a special guest from central germany our first guest from germany fabian muehlberger and we'd like to welcome you to the show thanks for taking your time it is very late in germany and uh, we are at 1 p.m. Mountain Time, so it's easy for us. But thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Great to be here. 9 p.m. is still before my bedtime, so no worries. And this is this has been a long time in preparation. You're a very busy guy. So we've been talking about this for several months and uh, finally been able to isolate a time where you were home and not on a project and we could get together with you uh, it it took a lot to make this happen, so I'm happy to have you. You you obviously are working in the the conservation field. Tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about how you got into uh, the photography end of things, in addition to the conservation work that you do. Yeah, so um, yeah, I'm a German conservationist. Uh, my background is in biology, so I studied biology and specialized in conservation and biodiversity. And um, there was always my interest since I was a child. I was into wildlife. And naturally, that led into biodiversity that I just wanted to know as much about species as I could. And um, that's also my way into photography because I only do nature and wildlife photography. And as a biologist, or even as a biology student, I got to go to all these really cool places and experience wildlife up close and started to document that and um, yeah I worked on my photography to make better documentations of my encounters and that's how I kind of slid into proper wildlife photography where it's not just about documenting wildlife but showing it in its natural environment and like take nice photos artistic photos yeah now you do a lot of macro work but you also have some, you know, some wide environmental and some real tight shots of uh, the larger species. What is your favorite? Would you rather be up close or do you do more work with the, the insects and reptiles, amphibians, or do you have a preference? As a biologist, my speciality is herpetology, so reptiles and amphibians. Um, that's why you see so many photos of them, like this cool snake right here um yeah they are amongst my favorites but i must say big mammals uh is yeah, where i have the most intense encounters like 
seeing an elephant up close or encountering a wolf, those that's what sticks with me the most. So um, from an emotional level, I must say big mammals. Um, from my interest level, yeah, it's, it's the frogs and the snakes that I like. So backing up a little bit, what was that learning process for the photography? Did you have a mentor? No, not at all. Um, so I bought my first little Nikon DSLR and uh, went to do an internship in Africa and just started shooting, however. And um, that sparked my interest. And then I spent a lot of time online in like nature photography forums. This was back in 2008, 9, 10, when um, yeah, the photography forums before Instagram were like a big thing. And I just tried to, to copy um, compositions that I saw there from other photographers. So it's all like online learned. And yeah, it was much later in the game that I started talking to other wildlife photographers and um, getting some mentorship from other people. But, and I'm assuming that was all digital at that point. So you had a lot of feedback, instant feedback on the back of your camera when you were starting, which has got to be a ton of, that's like a jump start right there. Exactly. Yeah, that was a luxury that I started photography with digital. I mean, I'm only 33 years old. So when I started it, what was I, 19, 20, that I picked up my first camera? Yeah, it was already the beginning of the digital age. It doesn't appear that you do a lot of photography at home. You do most of your, your work abroad, I'm sure, with your research. Is that, uh, is that the same with your photography? Or with just going out for artistic photos, not research photos? Uh, yeah, the thing is, when I'm in, in, in Germany, um, I do go out a lot. That's why I'm so sunburned at the moment. I spent all day outside and we had the first sunny day, warm sunny day of the year. Uh, yeah, it's more, more about observing. So today I was out with my binoculars all day, not with my camera. Um, somehow because I grew up with these species, I saw them every day. I don't have the big need to photograph them. I don't know why that is, it's just the way it is. That's why I hear that a lot. I don't photograph much at home in Germany. And I think it's just because those species, I think they're really cool and I like them. Everything I see here, the birds I see here, the frogs I see here. But for me, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm happy just observing them here. I don't need to document them because I can see them almost every day. Whereas when I travel somewhere and I encounter a species, it's like, oh, wow, this is like, I don't know if I ever can experience this again. So that's my need to photograph it. Yeah. And when you're traveling to these locations, are they, are, is that all on your own? Like you figure out a project and you just go pursue it? Or are you working with somebody in another capacity to say, okay, we need to go document this? Um, both. So a lot of my trips are really, I come up with an idea or I see photographs online or um, just during my research when I sit at home and like, read my books on wildlife. I'm like, I want to see the species in the wild. And then I make it happen. And I just uh, plan everything myself, finance everything myself. And I go out and I want to find it. Um, but I'm also sent on, on assignments to go and look for something specific. So both things happened. What, what would a, an example of an assignment be that you, like a recent assignment that you've had that you were with something and kind of give us a snapshot into how that all happens and just tell us whatever you can tell us i mean i'm sure some of it is is stuff that you can't share but if you could just give us an idea how that happens i think there's a lot of people that ask us questions about how do you get into this or how does this work 
and just everybody's got a different way of hap- having it happen, right? So what what is that like for you? One example where I really had a target species and I was sent, go and get it. That was uh, for the NGO Foundation Wilderness International that protects primary rainforests in Canada and Peru. And um, I was supposed to photograph coastal wolves. So they sent me to the coast of British Columbia and um, dropped me all by myself on an island and said, there's wolves here, go and photograph them. <laughs> so, so that's what I did. And so when you go out for something like that, what's the time frame? Are you just getting dropped off and say, I'll send up a flare when I'm ready to come home? Or do you say, I've got three weeks here, so I've got to figure out this process over the next three weeks? Yeah, so that one was a two-week assignment, uh, which 10 days I was alone. And the rest of the, like the last four days, other people from the foundation came. Because in that specific island, we were looking at pieces of land to purchase, to um, protect them from logging of intact forest to keep it from being logged. So I knew basically 10 days is my time frame. As soon as the other people arrive and they do their thing and we have campfires and talk, it's much less likely to encounter the wolves, of course. So I knew I have 10 days. And I uh, put a lot of preparation before going there. So I studied a lot about coastal wolves. I mean, they're quite different to, to other wolf species. So I learned there behaviors as good as I can. I looked at um, Bertie Gregory, Paul Nicklin, those photographers who I knew have photographed them in the wild. Ian McAllister, also a big name on the coast. So I looked into what they did and uh, if they published behind the scenes newsletters about their experiences with the wolves. I took all that to heart and then I did my scientific research where I got the papers out and I looked at the food preferences of the wolves so I took all that knowledge before I was dropped onto the island. So once I arrive, I hit the ground running and I was like, okay, the wolves have a schedule at low tide, they come and they walk on the beaches and that's when you can photograph them or like observe them, those kind of things. So I prepared myself a lot before going there that I can make the most of such a short time frame. And were you, were you working primarily from land at that point or, or were you working from the water? I completely on land. So. I was dropped off with food for the period of time. I brought my tent, set up camp, and was just yeah in the forest on the beach. Are there bears there as well, or were, were you? Is it predominantly wolves? Just wolves. So that was very important to me, um, not to camp alone without any protection in grizzly country. <laughs> so the occasional black bear um, may swim to the island. They're great swimmers, and they hop from island to island. It's very unlikely to encounter one and i'm not too worried about black bears uh to be honest but yeah not to be alone in grizzly countries like we do camp in grizzly country me and my friends from wilderness international like we have pieces of land directly in grizzly country and we go and camp there without fences and protection but then we're in a group so that gives us safety alone i wouldn't do that yeah it's a different experience by yourself you don't you don't sleep as soundly as you probably should yeah, I can imagine. So with that preparation, with all the study and just some of the stuff you were able to find out, what kind of success did you have? Was it a pretty good spot or was it sporadic or, you know, this wildlife stuff, you can never count on anything. Exactly. Um, so they gave me very hard time for, for a week. I found fresh tracks. I found a deer kill on the beach um, where I'm like, oh, this is a perfect location. I just sit here all day and wait for them to come back. 
and they didn't. But then on um, yeah, my last, second last evening alone on the island, it was a beautiful sunset and I had a wolf come out onto the beach and walk right up towards me, like too close to focus. And with my um, Shoot uh, Nikon and my 500mm had a focal distance of like 4.5 meters and the wolf came too close. I couldn't focus on its face anymore. So, yeah, from that one encounter I got amazing wolf photos. My favorite photos of all time, I think. So was that something that you were just every day, you're like, oh man, I'm trying this and I'm trying that and this is not working. I'm hiking and I'm doing all this stuff. And then it was just serendipity that it happened or did that whole process lead up to that last second to last night where you're like, okay, this is the spot. This is my best chance for success. Yeah, it was extremely frustrating um, because I found the signs of them everywhere and I tracked places down where I found the most signs. I'm like, okay, these must be really frequented. Or well, I found a kill and I was like, they have to return to their kill. Um, so that was super frustrating. And that evening I was actually trying to shoot otters because I saw the otters coming from the bushes, like they had the little trail and I found the den where they go down to the uh, sea and hunt fish. So I was actually shooting otters when suddenly the wolf came out. And after I returned home, the people who sent me an assignment actually told me, like, oh, we didn't think you actually find them. <laughs> they were like, yeah, yeah. Like, I'm like, what? I had all this pressure to find bloody wolves. It's always nice when so they like, tell you that after the fact, right? Yes. Did you have any inclination as to the like the number of wolves? Like you, you know, if it's a island that's let's say it's ten square miles, did they say, Oh, there's probably a pack of wolves here and you might see six or eight? Or did you just not have any information at all? Um, I had no information. I only knew they basically in every visit there, they find lots of wolf tracks along the beach. And um, from what I gathered, it was like two or three wolves. And ended up seeing, um, it was the last night on the island with the others, other people already there. We saw them at a distance and saw three in the middle of night. Yeah. So it's probably a very small group. Well, the sea wolves are a bit different that way. They don't make like really big groups. The large packs, yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, any, it, it depends so much on what they're hunting, right? If they're hunting deer, they don't need the big numbers. Whereas in Yellowstone, where they hunt bison, some of those packs yeah. now are, are 20 to 30 members in the pack because they need the numbers to take down a bison. So exactly. I can I can see why those uh, the coastal wolves they wouldn't travel necessarily. I mean, they might be individuals at times as as you encountered. Yeah, but they 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 scavenge on the shoreline. They they eat herring eggs. Uh, when the salmon runners they pick up like salmon from the river. So they really don't need to form large packs to bring down prey, as you say. And they have like some smaller spe um, subspecies of mule deer there which is also easy to take down for one wolf. Like a black tail? Yeah. Is that what they were? Mm -hmm. um, I think it's called, uh, yeah, the name is Sitka. Sitka, Sitka yeah. black tail. Sitka yeah. So when I go out on assignments like that, I find that, especially when I don't know much about the species, and you know that you're going to go out and get one specific thing, I am so focused on trying to get that one species. I end up missing a lot of the other stuff. It's cool that you you said, you know, you, you found some otters. And you're like, okay, well, let's just try the otters out. But for scenery and establishing shots and wides and 
telling the whole story, a lot of times I'm like too under the gun to think about that other stuff. But what I always try to do is get the assignment stuff first and then tell the rest of the story. How, how did that work out for you? Because the pressure's there, but, and I guess stills is a little bit easier than video just because you can take a still image fairly quickly and, and, you know, size something up and get it. With video, oftentimes it's a lot more that you need to, to set up. Did you have that stress of, I got to get this species first, then I can tell the rest of the story? Or were you able to tell all those, were you able to get all those story images along the way until you had that first encounter? Um, yeah, there was no problem. I could get a lot of this. I, sorry, my cat just walked in. Feeding time. Um, sorry. So I had lots of time to take landscape photos and establishing shots. And I do have the luxury of visiting British Columbia quite regularly through the foundation. Uh, so I can, like the rainforest on the island is the same as the rainforest on Vancouver Island, for example. So I have quite the collection of shots of the environment these wolves live in before going there. So the pressure was off. Uh, I spent a lot of time photographing the otters, as I said, or um, minks, lots of minks coming out of the sea in that place. So I could focus on those animals while waiting for a wolf to show up. And uh, yeah, what, what you mentioned with the target species and the assignments, that's why most of my assignments uh, so I work a lot for German TV here. It's called uh, Terra X. It's like the BBC Earth of German TV. And they also have a big social media section. And most of the assignments I pitch actually to them. And I'm being very clever about it. So I don't have that problem that you mentioned. I'm like, oh, I'm going to the Peruvian Amazon. I want to make a story about biodiversity in the Amazon. But I don't tell them, like, I'm going to make a story about jaguars. So jaguars would just be the crown jewel. But even if I don't succeed in finding one, I can talk about the trees, the birds, the macaws, and all other random wildlife I encounter. So I just leave it open, like I'm going to make an Amazonian rainforest start. If I find a jaguar, cool. If I don't find one, I never told anybody I would. There was no so pressure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's how I do actually most of my paid assignments is that I tell them, oh, I'll come back with an interesting wildlife story from this ecosystem but not with specific species. So are you shooting a lot of stills and video or are you doing predominantly stills? Predominantly stills. So with these Terex people, um, I don't shoot for the TV documentaries. I do the social media kind of things. They publish a lot of stories, articles, and um, yeah, the Instagram social media stuff. And then do they send over a, a video crew with you when you go do stuff like that? Or do you go like as a precursor, do you go out before and figure out what the potential is and then you come back and then they send a crew out or is it just they're sending you out just for that other content just because it's all wildlife conservation type of content oh uh, yeah the latter so it's mostly just me going out i've accompanied documentary teams but it's mostly me pitching an idea because i want to go to a cool place and um yeah if i can sell it then i just go by myself and do whatever I can to come back with an interesting story about wildlife, biodiversity, conservation. How are things changing over there? Is there more of a call for video or do you find that the still market, still photography is still pretty strong and you can find enough work? Um, I find people are more interested in the story behind the photo now. 
So they want to see somehow they want to see videos of how you make the photo more than they actually want to see the photo. So I feel that's at least over here in Germany now the big thing that you show how you suffer and camp out in the wild and bitten to bits by mosquitoes to get this one shot. That's what people are interested in nowadays, I think. Is it the same over there? Yes, I, I think people are, are very interested in There's a lot of people that are very interested in knowing how you go about getting the shots, uh, but there's still somewhat of a market for just the shots themselves. But it's it's interesting. We had a very famous European photographer, and I won't mention his name, but came over to Yellowstone, and they were going to do everything in the backcountry, got their backcountry permits, and went out and spent all this time away from the roads because that's where everybody else was and didn't get anything. So then they got all that content while they were in the backcountry, but all the images that they got were along the roadways in the northern part of the park and and along the roadways in the interior. So it was it was interesting that, you know, they thought they were going to be able to do it one way and then, you know, that success didn't didn't come about. So they had to join the masses and and just drive. <laughs> when you choose your locations, are you choosing places that are remote, fairly remote, or are you going to some more of the of the more popular spots or is it all species driven and you don't really care if it's a if it's a popular spot, but it's still a species that you'd like to investigate or film or whatever, is that the driving force behind what you're looking for? Yeah, it's it's all species driven, to be honest. So if it's really remote, cool, like I like it, but if I can see the species more likely in a more accessible spot, um, then I also do that. What I don't like is where you have to queue or stand in line with another 100 photographers. You know, we all know the scenes now where you have this nice wildlife shot and then. You check behind the scenes and it's just this line of photographers over 100. Uh, I don't enjoy that so much. Uh, otherwise, I don't I don't mind to go to places that are known to be good for a certain species. Looking at your feed, I mean, typically you're, you're going to obviously very biodiverse areas, but you've got a lot of uh, species content per location. Is that something else you look for where you're going to have more than just a target species and have lots of opportunities or is that just, it depends on the story? Yeah. Generally I mostly go to the tropics. That's my main speciality and, and, and biology is tropical ecology. Uh, so in the tropics, you just naturally have so many more species. So you come home with such a diverse portfolio. Um, but that's also something I like because I find it very hard to focus just on one group of animals. Like now I was in Peru and I go out at night, I want to see the frogs, I want to find the snakes, I want to get up early and see the howler monkeys and the birds. And I want to see the capybaras rolling in the mud at midday. So there's just so many different things happening all the time that I just want to, yeah, I just want to see it all, basically. (laughs) I just want to see all the animals and all the habitats. You have to limit your trips because you don't sleep for two weeks. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that regularly happens. <laughs> I that, feel that your I pain. Just, just, yeah, yeah it, it gets too much. So with your macro stuff at night, especially with reptiles, you have to be packing a lighting kit around with your T6 
too. I mean, the amount of gear that you got to be taking on some of these shoots is probably pretty significant. If you're doing daytime, long lens, macro, short lens, lighting, different cameras, different situations, give us a snapshot into the gear that you take on every particular shoot. Yeah, it's horrible. So I usually travel with uh, two camera bodies and then my 500 millimeter prime lens um, for all the daytime stuff. That's my go-to camera um, and my go-to lens because usually the things you need to photograph with the 500 millimeter are flighty. So you need to be ready at all times. And uh, then I carry my macro lens, of course. And I think for macro, you usually have more time. So that's my backpack. If I find something that needs a macro, I have time to get it out shoot it um classic wide angle for habitat shots 16 to 35 millimeter mostly carry and recently i got into wide angle macro photography um from uh Laowa, the, i think it's a chinese chinese or japanese brand of lenses yeah mm -hmm. they make Lower. very very specific yep. macro lenses they're all completely manual and uh, yeah, I recently really got into it. That's what I was going to yeah. ask. That's a that leads to another another issue where everything's manual, and you probably have to. They have a really shallow depth of field with macros. So do you have to take a series of shots and then stack them, or do you just take the one shot? I just take the one shot. So the thing is, um, most of the photography at night with reptiles and amphibians. I carry my lighting, so I have a flash and a big diffuser box. And um, then I just uh, close the aperture to f11, f12. Uh, that gives me more uh, field, uh, depth of field, which with a 15 millimeter lens is good enough. So it's, it's yeah, not like maybe with a 100 millimeter macros or something. So you do have a bit more depth of field. So it's good enough for me, at least. I know other macro people who are way more obsessed with it and they want to do the stacks. Um, but uh, at night in the rain, rainforest, it's mostly run and gun. So I don't have time um, to set everything up with one frog to hold still to then do a 10 photo stack or something. So with your lighting, is it a traditional flash that you're using with just a softbox or are you actually carrying a more of a studio style battery operated flash that gives you a little bit more light? No, it's a um, classic speed light flash from Nikon. And then <laughs> it's actually a really old, cheap softbox uh, that's square. But to get nicer photos, I, I took a Sharpie to the corners and just filled them in. So it's <laughs> round in shape now, like in the, in the photos, the reflection. But it'll, it, it, it works, so why spend more money? So kind of... Describe because most of our most of our listeners photograph megafauna. Yeah. Um, we have had some some macro photographers on the podcast before, but we've never had a description of the process necessarily. Kind of describe your workflow at at night, how you go about capturing those shots. Okay, so um, usually I'm not alone when I do these things. So I have one or two friends with me, like in, in Peru. We regularly go. I have a friend who lives and works there, so we go out with our head torches at night into the rainforest and just see what we can find, looking especially for frogs and snakes. And um, once we find one, it's a bit different to megaphone in the sense you interact more with the animal. 
Uh, you have to often. I mean, we're also both biologists in that case. So we also collect data on the animal. Uh, it's where it gets a bit tricky with the ethics of the wildlife photography because well, with snakes, for example, we, we catch them, we measure them, we weigh them, we have to ID them down to species level. For snakes, you often have to count scales to really ID them to species level. So for the scientific purpose, we interact with the species. And then when we put it back, I can like put it on a branch and hope it stays there and poses nicely. I take a photo. So it's not 100% in situ. I do take a lot of in situ photos too. I find a snake on a branch. I hold the flash in one hand and the camera in one and take a quick photo. That also works, but in general, I interact more with the animals because of the scientific aspect of my other kind of work, you know, which I know in wildlife photography is often frowned upon, which I completely understand. And I do not recommend anyone to just like run through the rainforest and harass animals <laughs> to make that very clear. <laughs> right. Well, I think with a lot of the smaller species, that's what you have to do. It's just really hard. I mean, I, I remember there was a time where I was doing small rodents yeah. and I would live trap them where I was at. And I had actually built a set that represented where I was at that I could haul in the back of a truck. Then I would take that out there, live trap these little guys, put them in the set. But it was it was a spot where they could always get out if they wanted to. But if they got out, they were still right where they were trapped. So it's not like I took them to a whole different area, but that was really the only way to get some of these nocturnal rodents. There's no other way. I mean, you could spend 10 days, like, like you were waiting for wolves. You could spend six months waiting for a, a kangaroo rat to jump by or something. And, you know, I think the smaller species, it's while some people might frown upon it, I don't know that there's a good way to capture and tell that story unless you are handling some of them. I do it with, with venomous snakes too. I won't, I just don't chance it. Yeah. I'd much rather have control of that snake and get it where it's safe for everybody that's there. It's usually one or two people. Me or, with venomous snakes, I always have somebody yeah. else. Same. But that way you can, you can get the shots that actually are going to tell the story, which I think is more important than, and in no way, shape, or form are we ever going to harm these animals. It's just a matter of getting them into a good spot that really highlights that particular species. Exactly, exactly. I know, yeah, it just gets a bit tricky when suddenly, like, the masses of people start doing that. No, like, in accessible places, that's where you enter the tricky zone. If you have an assignment and it's about conservation and telling the story of the animal and creating awareness or for data collection and the scientific um you know, assignments then it's completely fine no i think we all understand that just when you get 100 people queuing at one snake and everybody's harassing it to get the angry expression of what he stands yeah yeah get the image yeah but yeah so there's a lot more interaction with the smaller animals as you said it's it's no different than and michael has talked about this in the past people often want or ask for images of bears that with their mouth open growling and that kind of thing. And that just doesn't happen in the wild. So, you know, when you see those images, you know how people got them and it was probably a, a trained animal and they were probably getting food rewards because you don't get those images in the wild. Unless of course it's a fight, then obviously you're going to have some open mouth behavior, but there, there's a delicate balance. And I think 
you know, the, the times that I've handled reptiles, it's always been, and this is a result of having a good network. It's always been with uh, a biologist or a game warden or somebody that is going out to collect data and, you know, we'll spend some time at a den or we'll spend some time yeah. with, with an animal and then just walk away, leave them where they were. And I think, you know, that's important for people to understand. And we had uh, Matthew Sullivan. He's, he's a, a hobbyist herpetologist, not by training or education necessarily, but he's got a lot of experience and he was saying the same thing. And that's why they protect locations quite a bit because there are a lot of, uh, there is a lot of poaching with these animals and not necessarily poaching as in killing, but poaching as in collecting and then selling on a, you know, a, a market for wild, wild caught um, reptiles and amphibians. And that can be an issue as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's a huge issue. No? Even here in Europe in the herpetological community, so me and my colleagues, like, we usually don't share locations. Now, even within the very small circle of, of conservationists of reptiles, uh, people usually keep their mouth shut about certain color variations of a salamander they discovered. Things like that, because, yeah, people go out, they catch them and sell them for horrendous sums in the black market. So what's it like living and working out of Germany? Because I've always heard that, like, the Germans love the West and they love the, like the American West. They love the cowboy thing. They like the, um, Western wildlife. It's gotta be pretty cool to be able to go and film some of that stuff and take it back to Germany. Is that the case? Is, it, is what I've heard true or is that, do you get that feeling or is it not the case? It is true. Um, Somehow, like the, the whole Western thing is, is is huge in Germany or was huge in Germany. Um, we still have like theme park <laughs> where you can play cowboy, and there's a lot of actually Italian-made westerns uh, that were quite big when when I was a kid or even before in the eighties, seventies. Huge thing, but still on TV regularly. Um, I'd like to experience it for myself, to be honest. Like not the whole cowboy thing, but to to go to the American West. Uh, as a like snake lover, I'd love to see rattlesnakes. To be honest, I have never been to the US. I've been to Canada numerous times in South America a lot, but I've never uh, had the chance to to go visit the US. And there's a lot of places on my list that I'd love to see um, besides Yellowstone. So of course, I heard of this place in Arizona where you can get eight species of rattlesnakes in like one area. I'd love to see that. Yeah, I just I just uh, was photographing last weekend with a photographer slash naturalist that had just taken that or had taken that trip multiple times, not just taken it. And then we were going to, so when you want to come out, we can go photograph sage grouse and then go right to the rattlesnake den. And you can at least check nice. prairie rattlesnakes off your, off your list. And we also have a lot of uh, horned lizards as well. And there's, you know nice yeah I'll, I'll have to have to come over and explore yeah for one sure day. so what kind of projects do you have coming up or do you have some stuff on the on the docket for 2022 in the summer and fall um yeah i'm going back to to british columbia in august to try my luck with the wolves again it's been yeah three years since i 
yeah, visited the wolves. I'm doing this again this year. Then in September, I'll return to Peru to the Amazonian rainforest. I'm uh, going to help shoot a documentary about wildlife there. Um, a documentary for, for children, actually, for German TV. And what else do I do? Ah, yeah. I'm, I'm going to lead a Tiger Photography Safari to India in November. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. And then for February, I put in my head there, I want to go and see snow leopards. So I have to make that happen. And I'm currently working on the plan, outlining the trip, uh, talking to the contacts on site, because I've just been to Uganda in February and I saw leopards and lions. Then on my visit to Peru, where I was until last week, I finally managed to photograph a jaguar. It was with my camera trip, but I managed. So that's three panthera species of the big cats down, two to go. Uh, then I was invited to lead a tiger photography tour for November. So there would be species number four. And I'm like, hey, I could do in 12 months all five panthera species, the five big cats, within one year. And now I'm obsessed with the idea and just trying to make it happen. In January, February is the best time for snow leopards in northern India, in Ladakh. So that's my big plan of what I want to do. But otherwise, Canada for the wolves, back to the Peruvian jungles for documentary shooting. And in between, right now, I'm mostly working as a biologist doing environmental assessment work here. I'll put you in touch with a couple of photographers from, uh, they're from the Middle East actually, but they just had a very, very, very successful trip with snow leopards. I mean, they got... They oh, got fantastic. cubs, cubs of the year. They got several different adults. Um, very good trip. And there's, you know, we've had a couple of guests that lead trips over there, and it's pretty limited. I mean, you're you're photographing animals that are several hundred yards away sometimes, or meters. And and yeah. these guys tended to have uh, much closer contact with them. Obviously, they're very shy, wow. um, but they had a very successful trip. Yeah. And I don't think you could ever promise that every time, but they were in a very good area. So I'll I'll give you their contacts and you can really you can reach out to them and network a little bit. That'd be amazing. And it was also in northern India? or where did Yeah, I believe it was northern India. And then I, it sounds like they got into China also um, through hmm. some earth. Yeah. It might have been Mongolia rather than China, sorry. Yeah, they have a, the, the snow leopards have a huge distribution. So if you go do that, you had mentioned camera traps before. Is that another like form factor that you'll take on if you know it's a particularly difficult species that you'll bring your camera traps? Or would you go yeah. to do snow leopards with just the, the handheld gear that you're running? Um, it, yeah, it depends on time. So camera trapping is something I got into over the last two, three years. I cobbled together a camera trap and um, a very strong learning curve. It's very frustrating work. <laughs> but now now I finally think I've got my setup figured out. Um, like the Jaguar shots I mentioned. <laughs> oh, one of the best Jaguar photos I've ever seen, in my humble opinion. Talking about my own photo, I know. <laughs> But it's out of focus. Oh no! Oh. It's it's so I set up 
the trigger in a way there was a uh, a fallen tree over a creek and i set it up in a way that if a jaguar comes towards the camera it's going to trigger in the right moment and the other way i'm like i'm just going to get the butt of a cat so i don't i don't care when it triggers the thing is the jaguar came the wrong way but stopped turned away turned around and looked at the camera so it, it triggered too early but it would have been the perfect pose and like, ah, I don't want to talk about it. I'm very happy with the photo, even though it's not in focus. Otherwise, everything is, is perfect about this shot. And again, I learned from it. And now I've really nailed it down. That was like the last piece of information that I needed. And yeah, from now on, I'm going to do a lot more camera trapping. Um, I work a lot in the Peruvian Amazon. And I will do that for the next couple of years. I visit once or twice a year. So I'm planning to put a, a more permanent camera trap down there that uh, my biologist friends can maintain while I'm away. We get five species of cats down there, two species of wild dogs, and of course lots of other animals, but those would be the main targets. That's already a lot, like five cat species that you can encounter, and one on the same trail. It's crazy. So when you do that, I think what you said is exactly right. I mean, it's just trial and error and you've got to screw some things up to figure it out, just to learn, just to have like a, an aha moment where you think you got it all dialed in and then all of a sudden you just, it just messes up. So explain a little bit about what, cause we've talked to several camera trappers out there and everybody's got their own little process and everybody has a very long learning curve. Are you getting to the point now where you're trying the active sensors, the passive sensors, multiple cameras, or are you still keeping it pretty simple starting out with just one camera and one type of sensor? Yeah, so I'm um, using the passive sensors, the infrared ones. And um, well, at the moment, I only have one sensor. I'm going to get a few more and I'm going to talk Nikon into giving me a few more cameras, like I work with Nikon Germany. And since DSLRs are becoming outdated now, but they're perfect for camera trapping, uh, I want to convince them to give me a few more old, but still really good bodies, and then set up a grid of camera traps in an area. Like in Peru, where I regularly return, so I feel comfortable placing a few full-frame cameras there in the forest. But for now, it's one passive infrared sensor and um, two camera bodies, actually. So I just use my old bodies, but they're triggered by the same sensor, but they give me two different angles. And also from one encounter, I can come um, back with two very different photographs. So have you got it down to the point where you're using multiple types of lenses where you might be able to have somewhat of a telephoto tucked away in a box and then some sort of wide angle? And then are you pre-focusing or are you leaving the cameras on autofocus for a certain point? How, what's your, how do you run that? Um, I pre-focus, which again was probably my problem with the Jaguar. Uh, but a lot of the animals, um, they they show up at night or the highest activities at night, so uh, it's all manual focus. Otherwise, your camera just wouldn't trigger at night. And um, you know, I set up two or three flash guns depending on the environment I set it up in. So two for the actual animal, and then one. It usually goes in the background to illuminate the habitat a little bit if it's if it's nighttime um and i try to to set the settings of the camera in a way that works for day and nighttime since i mostly shoot in, in forests so um, um 
I try to, to have quite long exposure because in the rainforest, even in daytime, you only get 2% of the light that you have above the canopy. It's always quite dark. And it's also a tricky bit to figure that out, how you set your camera that works at night and daytime or the flashes. Oh, yeah, it's, it's just a very complicated craft. But it really it's, is. It's the, yeah, the, the most fun I had in photography in a while is figuring that out, to be honest. And when you come back to your camera trap, it's like a kid at Christmas, like, what did I get? Like, <laughs> socks again, which is the approaches out of focus. <laughs> so when you say older DSLRs, are you referring to like the D850s or even older than that? Or are you looking for the highest quality sensor that you can throw in in a you know somewhat affordable camera? Yeah, even older than that. Like I, I love the D850, um, fantastic camera. But the thing is with the camera traps, if you, I mean, your camera is fixed, and then you set up a lighting system with the flashes, and you usually go to f11. It's like the go-to aperture. <laughs> so almost even the kit lenses have amazing sharpness at f11 flash guns and stuff. So you really do not need the latest and best cameras to get high quality photos because you're in control of almost everything. You control the lighting, you control um, the composition and the place the animal is going to be before it's even going to be there. So really, if you have like nice big full frame sensor, that's the only thing I care about, but you don't need too many megapixels or anything or high frame rates, nothing like that. So you can really get amazing high quality shots out of really old camera bodies with camera traps. Are you making your own camera trap systems? Like, are you buying stuff from Camtraptions that where you're just like building your kit or do you go to a company like uh, Cognosys where you're buying the whole system so that it's a proven unit that has the flash capability as well as multiple bodies and you're, you're buying the box. Are you making the boxes yourself for the cameras or do they you buy them pre-made? Yeah, so the sensor I bought, um, because that's the easiest option nowadays, there's such a great selection. Uh, the camera housing I cobbled together myself, and the attachments I use for the trees, how uh, to, to um, install the camera on the tree, and the flashes to put them onto trees I use uh, from a hardware store. I don't know, like just normal clamps, basically. Got to have mm -hmm. a screw attached where you can put on... Uh, I don't know the English words for it, but you know what I mean. And um, the cases for the flash guns I make myself too, which are mostly glorified plastic bags, but like out of really solid see-through um, material. So it's mostly self-made cobbled together stuff. I use really old Nikon flashes. I think the flash, uh, that, that flash gun that everyone uses, the Nikon SP28. Yep. Yeah. Very reliable if you can find them yeah it used to be so easy and so cheap but now there's so many camera traffic <laughs> um, we just did a yeah. podcast with another person here in the u.s that's doing a lot of camera trapping and what did he say ron he said he had 25 of those yeah he said every time he sees one on Water. ebay he, he buys it yeah. <laughs> yeah that's the way to go so are you firing the flashes remotely through a uh, cableless just a firing or you do you run the cables to the flash system so that it's all talking at the same time? Um, I'm doing it remotely because cables in the rainforest just are not surviving for a long time. There are so many rodents that love nibbling through them. 
Mm-hmm. Um, of course, cables are the best because of this instantaneous communication. But it's just going to hold a few days and then they're gone. So it's not worth even trying. Now your your housings have to be pretty weather tight also for to prevent any damage to the camera bodies, correct? Yeah. So I'm or, using an old fo- um, fogging. Yeah, a pelly case um, that I drilled a big hole in and then used um, a filter adapter to, to, to put like a big filter on, on a smaller camera and just screwed that to the front of the housing and then screw filter in and that completely keeps it shut. And then I throw a lot of silica gel in. So once everything is set up, take a handful of uh, silica gel sachets throw them in the box, keep it closed, and the camera's taken care of, even in the monsoon-like rains we get in the Amazonian rainforest, no problem. Are you building a cover for the lens, too, just to minimize the amount of moisture that, you know, rain or whatever that would get on that filter? Um, yeah, so I just use a little sheet of tin roof, you know, the, the classic tin roofs with the waves. Um, yeah, I just cut a piece of that and that on top of the trail doesn't look pretty but does the job and it's um, very easy to come by in the rainforest because everyone has some lying around in their garden and by garden i mean the little hut in the middle of the rainforest (laughs) (laughs) well that's pretty awesome that you're doing that and i think that is becoming one of the best ways to get some of these images that you're never going to get any other way i mean the amount of time that you would have to sit there waiting for a jaguar to cross a log by sitting there could be months, right? It's like oh, yeah. the Our Planet episode where they put that guy in a box for, what was it, three three weeks at a time waiting for a Siberian tiger, and I think they yeah, did it they for spent, six months and never saw it. Yeah, 180 days they spent in there, you know? and all the footage came from camera traps in the end. Yep, yep. And that, yeah, the one, the one encounter that they had. You know, last year I had my camera trap out for two months in the Amazonian rainforest. And I got one shot of an ocelot, um, one of my favorite photos. But in two months, you only had one ocelot walking through. Even though there's so many animals living in the area. And now I only had it out for just a week with a very short trip. And I got an ocelot, I got jaguar, tons of agoutis and reds, lots of activity. But yeah. That's, that's pretty productive. Yeah. For a system like that and for, for a week's a week's trip I'd, exactly. I'd be pretty happy with that yeah except yeah. i hate i hate to keep talking about it but the jaguar shot that broke your heart but <laughs> that would be tough but to have that much activity on a camera trap in one week i think you've got to be pleased with that result absolutely and the good thing is that um foundation that i was part of starting owns the piece of forest that the log is in. <laughs> I'll be back. So right now I'm upgrading my gear. I'm going to get bigger battery packs so I can leave the camera out for much longer periods of time. I'll be back in September. I'll put it in the exact same position. I'll focus properly, no matter from which direction the dagger is going to walk over that log, and I'm going to leave it out for month and month. So I'm not worried. I'm, I'm going to get a photo of the Jaguar that's in focus. Well, I can't wait to see it. 
I have one more question along those lines. Do you use uh, the little store-bought trail cameras for like research as well, like to find good shooting locations? Like a lot of times what you think might be a really good spot for a camera trap, once you set it up, you realize, oh, that's not the best situation. If I had to set up three or four or five fifty, sixty dollar trail cameras, that would have given me much better information on the actual camera trap placement. Is that something you're working with too? Absolutely. So again, it's it's the luxury of knowing the place and the people um so well. And um um besides our foundation that protects forests in the area, we work with another NGO that has been studying those forests for over twenty years. And they have an ongoing trail camera grid and they have local mammal biologists on site. So I talk to them and be like, this is what I want to do. Where do I have the highest chances to do that? And they're like, oh, that's how I got to that log. My friend was like, this log is beautiful as hell. It's fantastic. And it funnels all the animals they want to cross this creek. So, and he was right. Fantastic place. So I rely a lot of on the knowledge of the uh, people working in the area who get most of their knowledge also from the camera traps. They set up now they have this huge grid of like 50 trail camps in the area. It's such a good tool for us. I mean, I think you have to be careful because, I mean, I can't go anywhere nowadays without looking for camera tra or trail cameras that people have set up just because you don't want to pee in the woods because you don't know if you're going to get caught on a trail camera exactly. or not. But, but they are important source of information and really will help and there's plenty of places that I've well Ron when you and I were up at Lake Clark where we were constantly thinking oh I wonder what goes on back in this forest over here where we would not spend any time but if we had a camera trap or a trail camera at least you have an idea of what's going on and whether it's worth pursuing at a later date yeah exactly I really like them they're so affordable now and it's crazy the technology that you can get instant messages with the photos on your phone. It's insane. Yeah, is that area, does it have cell coverage where you're setting up these cameras? Because that would be really cool if you had a cellular trail camera that would actually say, oh, yeah, I just got a picture of a Jaguar on your phone, and then you could go check your camera trap. Yeah. No, sadly not. Like, there's certain patches. It's, it's very random. You walk through the forest, and suddenly you get messages, and you go, okay, I have reception right. here. Uh, I know there's one place down by the river. It's like really just a tiny patch where you can stand in the mud and you have reception. <laughs> Lots of those places around, but sadly not to any of the good locations I've seen so far. Well, and there's probably something good to be said for that too. I mean, we don't need this. I mean, having the, the help is awesome, but I guess we don't need to have help all the time. You know, that's almost like cheating, right? Exactly. Like, Part of the fun of wildlife photography is, is the hunt. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Absolutely, it is. Yeah. That is, yeah, for me, that's all the fun. The the work that yeah. it takes to get the image and not just the image itself, I think, is is the, the best part. That being said, we let you off the hook a little bit earlier, and you might, you can't use the same wolf story, but... As much as you've traveled, what is your favorite ever outdoor experience besides the wolf? <laughs> yeah, 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 I know. No, no, the thing is that there's a lot of, a lot of stories and it's really, really hard to pick. Um, some of the most 
intense ones were always involving big mammals. Like recently, in February was in Uganda. And, um, even though it's quite easy to go and see the gorillas when you have the money. Um, so we did that for our honeymoon. It was like my dream. So being in the cloud forest and like looking into the eyes of a gorilla is, is wow, goosebump moment. Like that's fantastic. And um, another of my favorites is walking into a herd of elephant of dwarf uh, pygmy, pygmy elephants in Borneo in the rainforest it was also a very very intense intense moment. But like just you and a herd of elephants just standing right in front of you. Now that would be pretty amazing. I had, my son yeah, is going to Africa this summer, and so I started re researching in one of the. The spiral horned antelope is the the bongo, and they they kind of have a tiger stripe, and they're in yeah. the swampy areas. So, I've been sending him information every day, and he said we're not going to have time to do that. We're not going to have time to do that. And he and then he said, uh, "Well, if you're going to send me all this information, does that mean you're going to send a camera with me also?" And <laughs> I had to tell him no. <laughs> but I the opportunities that are out there to see animals and, and encounter wildlife that we might not otherwise ever have the opportunity to encounter, I I couldn't pass it up if I was over there. I'd have to do everything I could to try to find one. Yeah. But yeah, the, things, the thing is there are so many species, you really you don't have the time. But I find it also very fulfilling that no matter how much work I'm going to put in and how much time I spend outside looking for wildlife, that for the rest of my life, I'll have more than enough to do. And I could live 10 lifetimes and there would still be so many animals I want to go and find. So it's, it's nice to know that it's a never-ending task and it's going to bring you joy and happiness forever. Yeah, exactly. I think that's probably the best pro tip we've ever had. Is that if, you know, if you're a true wildlife enthusiast, you'll never run out of subjects. So I was just looking on your website. You have a gallery on here, but you also have a shop. And you've got a calendar and then some prints and stuff. How's that going for you? Oh, yeah, that, that's still in the works. So the calendar um, was for this year. That works really well. Mm -hmm. I just do that once a year. Now, a very small, limited series. And... A lot of that money also goes directly into the foundation to um, protecting rainforest. So that's just a hobby on the side. And um, I'm just starting to sell the fine art prints now because I'm getting requests from people saying, like, hey, we want to buy prints. Like, okay, if people want prints, I'm going to start offering prints. So um, yeah, I'm just getting that started. As you see, my website is not it's currently under construction you know? so if you open portfolio you'll be greeted with nothing <laughs> but there's already a few nice galleries to see and um, the first fine art prints of my favorites that also hang on my personal wall can be found there yeah they're very very nice i was just looking at them it's 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 cool stuff and then the calendar is pretty awesome so that foundation are you, were you one of the founders of that foundation or has it been around for a while and and you pretty much just work for them um, yeah, so there's diff diff different branches, and the Canadian one has been operating for a long time. And that's how I got started with them as a wildlife photographer for the Canadian branch. And um, I invited them to join me in Peru because I was organizing a trip to the Amazon uh, where I work a lot. And 
now we're here three years later and have founded the Wilderness International Peru branch, which is an entity by itself, a Peruvian registered foundation with board members from all around the world. Um, so not just from, from Germany, but Peruvians, Canadians. And um, yeah, I'm a founding member and board member of the Peruvian branch. But very good and very important. That's awesome to, yeah. to be involved with something like that. Is there ways that people can help support you? Or oh, yeah, support absolutely. those foundations? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's super easy. Um, because we, what we do, just to explain that, is um, we look for intact pieces of rainforest and purchase them. So titled lands go into the possession of um, the foundation and are then protected for life. I mean, we have to use different strategies for Canada and Peru. Uh, in Peru, we have to show presence a lot. We hire local people that we trust, um, forest guardians who look after the areas. But it's all about not um, reforesting or anything. It's like taking a piece of rainforest that is intact and has not been disturbed and just protecting it in areas where people are likely to move in, chop down the forest and put a cattle farm there or whatever. So... That's what we do, protect and take rainforest, and it's super easy. You can just go to the website wildernessinternational.org and anybody can donate. So we have large businesses donating with travel agencies offsetting their carbon footprint for sending people around the world through us. We monitor all our forest holdings, um, measure the trees, measure the growth of the trees, look at the species and on a scientific level and really calculate the carbon that stands on one square meter of forest so people can very accurately offset that. That's um, one aspect. The other aspect is we, of course, don't just offset carbon. We protect biodiversity by protecting like old forests, and anyone can do it, from large businesses to uh, yeah, anyone who wants to buy one or two square meters of forest who um, needs a last-second birthday present. You can just donate money and instantly print out a nice certificate with the geo-references, the coordinates. We show drone footages of each piece of forest. You can actually like go and see this is exactly the tree I'm protecting because we've all got it all mapped out. Yeah. And it's a very simple okay. transparent system. That's pretty awesome. How hard is it to protect the forest down in Peru? Is it, are they under siege? Uh, quite regularly or is it something that is you know once people understand it's set aside for to be what what it is do they leave it alone or is there always pressure to develop or pressure to cut it down yeah so we were operating is um on the Tambopata reserve in the Madre Dios region in south eastern Peru and there's um, a highway that now connects the Pacific and the Atlantic it goes through Peru and then Brazil and from there, you can see it like fish bones branching out from the highway. In the area we're working in, we have the Tambopata Reserve in the back. So that's off limits. Nobody's going to touch that. But along the banks of the Tambopata River, the land is up for grabs. So people can go in, buy it, chop it down if they want to or not. And um, yeah, so we're protecting it by buying it and then showing presence that we use it. We have the forest guardians on site. Uh, the local lodges, they are also, of course, in favor of 
the forest being intact because people come to see the wildlife. You know, it's one of the special places where the macaws come to eat at the clay lakes. You've probably seen photos of that. We have like hundreds of macaws on the riverbank. You know, so you have a lot of tourists coming to see that. And for that, you need the intact forest. Uh, but protecting it is quite easy if you put in the work. Right? If you work with the locals, it's just about showing presence. If people see you, there's the forest is watched and there's people regularly visiting, they're not going to go in, build a house, chop down the forest. That's not going to happen. And if you leave it alone, that's very likely to happen, that people just move in, claim the land. You can do that in Peru. And if you put up a house, you live there for a certain amount of years, you feel like, hey, I'm using this, this piece of land, I'm farming, then after a while you can legally claim it. But it's mm. very easy to fight just by yeah, setting up a system of constant presence and supervision. Does the definition of constant presence change from government administration to administration? Or is it is it fairly consistent how they define presence? No, no, like that's yeah, that's that's not that's not um, actually put into into legal terms. So the government doesn't really care. It's if somebody moves into your land and lives there and you don't notice for five years, then they're like, no, that's your fault. So um, it's it's your own responsibility to prevent that from happening. That's independent of government. So if you have people coming in and you see like they want to set up camp, you just tell them, hey, no, this is our land, leave, and that's good enough. And um, if you, for example, donate money, we've already made the calculations for the land taxes and um, salaries for forest guardians and stuff. So if you buy a few square meters, that money already includes for more than 100 years all the running costs of maintaining the land. That's already taken care of. So when you guys buy the land, is it bought from the government or is it bought from a, a, a Peruvian landowner? Or how does that work? Um, yeah, so we buy only titled land, and that belongs to private people, usually. And most of it is owned by Peruvians, but we also bought a piece that belonged to um, a Canadian biologist who's been working in the area for a long time. That's pretty awesome. That's along the lines of what the, the people from Patagonia did with, or like North Face went in and bought a bunch of land and, and Patagonia, the company Patagonia went in and bought a bunch of land down in Chile, I, I believe is where it's at and have set it aside as a reserve, which it's pretty awesome. That's pretty big scale, but it sounds like what you guys is, are doing isn't that small. It's, it's pretty significant. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I heard the Patagonia story. I don't know the details. I know there were a few problems and hiccups, or still are, because he wasn't working with the local people. So in general, it was a school that it happened. And we tried to prevent those errors by closely working with the local people and also having Peruvians on the board. It's not just a board of Germans who are like, we're buying Amazonian rainforest. No, no, like, this is <laughs> work together, you know? So uh, we're very, very careful with that. And, wanting to make this a thing that suits everyone. And uh, by protecting the rainforest, we also protect the local economy, which largely thrives on ecotourism, people coming to see the forest and the wildlife. So that's very important to us to, to involve local communities as much as possible in that process. You said you're going to lead a, a workshop to do the tigers. Do you lead workshops down to Peru as well? Is that something where there's a, a group of photographers that could go with you to 
experience it and use your knowledge of that place to come away with really, really good stuff? Not yet. I've been toying with the idea for a while. Uh, the thing is, when you offer a workshop like that, the pressure is extremely high, as you probably know. Um, and Peruvian wildlife can be quite difficult to track down. Like me and the Jaguar. For 12 years, I've been visiting Jaguar country. I have not yet managed to see one with my naked eye. No, they're all around me. They've been stalking me. I find their footprints and my footprints. I wake up in my hammock and I saw one walk by at night. They are there, but they always elude me. And I know a lot of people, when they want to do a photography workshop in the Amazon, they expect like the Pantanal where everyone sees a Jaguar. And that's just not the case. And that's what I'm a bit scared of. Because in my mind, I have the perfect two-week tour for Peru where you start on the coast with the huge colonies of sea lions and humble penguins. Uh, you have very good chances for marine otters, the smallest marine mammal on the planet and one of the rarest mammals on Earth. They are around there. Then you head up to the mountains, you see the Andean condors, the um, biggest flying bird in the world. You see the vicuñas, the wild camels. Go down the other side of the Andes, you have good chances for the spectacle bear and um, the Andean cock of the rock, which is this beautiful, colorful bird. And the cloud forest itself is just the fairy tale forest. And then you head down to Amazonia, where I know very good places for giant otters. Um, you can see hundreds of macaws by the side of the river. So I have a like, two-week idea where I could offer that. And it would be extremely diverse, where you have rainforest macaws, but you also have penguins, you have super high mountain species. So it would be an amazing mix. And I'm a bit scared of the responsibility. I'm, I'm waiting. I'm <laughs> waiting to sign up. I have yeah. to be completely honest. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think if you if you put it out there as more of an ecotourism, just an experience with the chance to give photos, I think you would probably have, I think people would know going in, just as long as you don't promise, say, we're going to get, you know, 10,000 shots of Jaguars, then you would be safe. And, and it, you know, for me, it's as much about the experience as it is getting an image nowadays. Yeah. Um, I don't think I'm quite as hungry to get the image as I am to have the experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. Like as a, as a um, nature trip with the chances of all that, that's fantastic. But yeah, you know, if you if you advertise it as a photography trip, people people expect to come home with fantastic focus. And a lot of places can offer that. Like the Pantanal. If you want Jaguars, you go to the Pantanal. But that's the only place where we work in Amazonia. is one of the best places in the rainforest to see jaguars like and i've been working there for years and i haven't seen one but in amazonia it has the highest rate of jaguar encounter once you leave the rainforest you go to the pantanal it's a different story there everybody sees a jaguar well i don't i don't think you'd ever come away from a trip like that empty-handed i mean you might not get the jaguar but you're going to you're going to come home with especially for North Americans, you're going to come home with several hundred species that you would never have imagined being able to see. You know, the opportunity to see a spectacled bear, there's only eight, eight different bear species on the planet. And the, the spectacled bear is probably one of the least photographed. So I, just the opportunity to have an encounter 
and and to go from the coast clear into Amazonia, man, I, I don't think you could go wrong with that trip, personally. And it's 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 yeah, not just nature so diverse. Also, I have to I have to say, Peru for eight years in a row, best culinary destination on the planet. So it's oh, I'm ready to send my deposit. You just tell me where you need it to go. So what's the best place for people to find you? Instagram? Uh, obviously, we'll put links in the show notes to every everything that you have with your website and Instagram. But just to call it out over over the podcast, what is the best places for people to see your work? Instagram. Um, yeah, that's where I'm most active. I update most recently. It's easiest to reach me. I usually, if I have internet, I answer within the day if you, if you send me a DM. Um, my homepage is still, I'm, I'm, I'm working it. It'll, it'll be done soon. Uh, it takes time. And, you know, I think you're right. I think everybody uses Instagram more than anything now. Yeah. The best thing about your website is you're going to be able to, you know, buy a, a limited edition print or, or a fine art print. And that's probably the best thing for that. Although I guess nowadays you can sell stuff on Instagram as well, but. Instagram is by far and away the best spot, and you got some awesome work on Instagram for people to go and check out. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, and that's actually how I became a professional photographer. As horrible as it sounds, but I'm one of those people who became big on Instagram, and then it's how German TV found me. And I got all my paid assignments, and then one one thing led to the other. And yeah, it all started with Instagram, me just showcasing my expedition and the animals I found. I hear that story a lot and uh, you got in at the right time and your work. Yeah. Your work speaks for itself. It says yeah. that. I mean, it says high quality. Awesome. Yeah, exactly. So good work. Good job. Thank you again Thanks. for, I'm. it's, it's starting to get late over there, but thank you again for your time. And uh, we will put the links to everything that we've talked about in the show notes, as well as the, the foundation information We'll put links there as well so that people can go and donate. And, yeah. Oh, thanks. That's awesome. So yeah. please make sure that you visit Fabian's uh, Instagram page and also that you visit the Wild and Exposed page. Check out the show notes and the incredible work that he has he's shared with us and that he shares on his Instagram profile. And then make sure that you look at the uh, the opportunities that you have to contribute as well to the foundation and keeping the rainforest from being deforested as well as, you know, in, in the Amazonian basin, as well as British Columbia, the northernmost rainforest. And we have several species that we appreciate there also. Thanks again for listening and joining us on the latest episode of Wild and Exposed podcast. You've been listening to the Wild and Exposed podcast. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating and a review. And make sure you're subscribed so that you'll get every episode we produce as soon as we drop it. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're gonna make it someday. Nothing's gonna get in our way. We will be the biggest band in time.